0: Welcome back to episode two in our Points of Discussion mini-series, Is I Pledge Working? A Conversation on Risk Management and Isotretinoin. In episode one, we took a look at the history of the program with Dr. Jill Lindstrom. If you haven't had a chance to listen, be sure to go back. Before we begin, it's important to note The views and information expressed during this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance. The purpose of this podcast is to be thought-provoking and to stimulate new ideas, new collaborations, and novel research. Any reference to medical treatment or disease management is for this purpose only. It is not an endorsement by Pedra and is not a substitute for medical care medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Any decisions related to medical care should be made in consultation with a qualified healthcare provider. I'd like to introduce your program host, Dr. Leah Laylor. Dr. Laylor is a practicing pediatric dermatologist at the Medical College of Wisconsin and vice chair of Pedra's Acne and HS Focus Study Group. I'll turn it over to you, Dr. Laylor. Thank
1: you. Welcome to episode two. In episode one, we heard a discussion with Dr. Jill Lindstrom on the history of iPledge and REMS programs with isotretinoin. Here in episode two, we will discuss iPledge in the clinic with Dr. Alona Friedan. Dr. Frieden is a practicing pediatric dermatologist at UCSF. She is the president of the Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance and the co-chair of the American Academy of Dermatology Association's iPledge work group. Thank you, and welcome to episode two. In episode one, we heard a discussion with Dr. Jill Lindstrom on the history of iPledge and REMS programs with isotretinoin. Here in episode two, we will discuss iPledge in the clinic with Dr. Ilona Frieden. Dr. Frieden is a practicing pediatric dermatologist at UCSF. She is the president of the Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance and the co-chair of the American Academy of Dermatology Association's I Pledge Work Group. Thank you for being with us today, Dr. Frieden.
2: It's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. So how did you get involved in the
1: AADA I Pledge Work Group?
2: Actually, uh, my involvement came out of a discussion at American Dermatologic Association meeting which was held in the, the fall of, of 2018. And actually Markham Luke, who was who worked for the FDA but he was in a different part of the FDA, was at that meeting and um, Kanadi Shinkai, one of my colleagues who has a special interest in Acne and I, were just trying to talk to learn more from him about why why things were the way they were and to get some insight into, why the program hadn't changed, why it, it was the way it was. And he, you know he gave us, first of all, he gave us some advice. He said, you know, you're not going to be able to abolish eye pledge. Don't, don't try to do that. It's not realistic. It's, it's, there's too many patients of childbearing age that are getting this medication. But maybe if you begin a process of trying to approach the FDA with, well, what's different now, um, you would you would be able to to begin to think about whether you could change it. So we wrote um, we began we approached the AAD as kind of our major professional organization. and I had been on the AAD board, and I think this speaks to for those of us you who are listening in the feed audience to the importance of, of keeping a, a foot in general dermatology. I had met a lot of colleagues through my work, with the AAD on various committees and on the board. And I, I had become friends with Suzanne Olbricht, uh, who was uh, president at the time, and become her, we, we had become personal friends. And so I knew I had some connections at the AAD to figure out what the AAD could do. Um, and I approached Suzanne and other people, and they said, well, you know, we should form a work group. Um, to look at this and 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 we did and because because I came up with this idea, I got to be the chair of this work group is mean, basically being in the right place at the right time but and and knowing people who who understood that this was super important. And people in the AAD had been doing work before that. It certainly was not a new idea, but it was the idea of maybe things are so different now that we can really make a change. And we have been working for the last Um, three years now. And I think we're making a little, there's like, it's like two steps forward, one step back, but I'm still, I'm an optimist. So I believe that we're going to make a difference. Well, what had changed that made us think that we needed to do this? A few things. First of all, the AAD had just before that come out with acne guidelines of care which included the role of isotretinoin as well as the role of other things. And one of the important precepts of the AAD Acne guidelines, which are the guidelines of our specialty, consensus um, evidence-based guidelines, were that antibiotic stewardship is an important part of what we do as dermatologists, which includes limiting when possible, antibiotic oral antibiotic exposure to three months, uh, more or less, and then think about other other medications to use. And that, I think, revolutionized for many of us um, who I used to routinely have patients for 18 months on doxycycline, minocycline. I didn't like that, but I did it. Um, and, it and this was really saying, this is not the right way to treat patients in general. There are exceptions. Um, with young women, ma- many of us were becoming more and more comfortable with using oral contraceptives, which had become an FDA-approved treatment for, for acne by then, uh, and that was very important to us. Um, but what did we have for young men? We couldn't choose uh, spironolactone or, or, or um, oral contraceptives. Uh, it was either uh, oral antibiotics, maybe things like dapsone, but you know those weren't really first-line treatments, and then you kind of thought about isotretinoin. So that was sort of point number one with the acne guidelines and how they were um, changing our practice. The second thing was that we had changed our practice in terms of laboratory monitoring. With the exception of pregnancy tests, there wasn't the need, based on on good evidence, to do routine monthly CBCs, liver function tests. And uh, so that had changed. And so we didn't need to see um, our patients, except for the pregnancy tests, we didn't need to see them monthly, uh, unless you felt there were reasons that they needed to be seen monthly. So that was the second thing. The third thing was um, that the I pledge program was developed before certain forms of contraceptives, which are highly effective, more effective than the ones that had been in place when the program was developed. So long acting um, you know, implants, for example, uh, hadn't really existed then and is extremely effective uh, in, in preventing pregnancy and essentially puts you in a state where it's virtually impossible if you have the implant to become pregnant. There was things like the morning after pill, which obviously would have been a very important part of the educational program uh, for young women if they were using abstinence as their main, um, you know, form of contraception, but then they uh, had a event where they could possibly become pregnant. So there were a lot of developments that had occurred. And then the other thing that I think really, um, and, and also telemedicine, and that and that basically the iPledge program was agnostic. It didn't say you couldn't do telemedicine, but it didn't say you could. And so you didn't know if those kinds of visits, which now, I mean, three years later are like, every single day, but in those days it was still, it was just developing as sort of a form of delivery of care. And, and then the final thing was, um, we really began to think about, about patient-centered care much more, I think, than it had been when, in 2006. And that was, what is this doing to patients? We had increasing evidence, and even more now, that, dis- that the disparities of care were exaggerated by, by the iPledge program there are places that are literally, I pledge deserts, or in deserts, because there's no practitioner who can do it, or I was having, and my own personal stake in this were, were young boys who, you know, young men who, who couldn't become pregnant, obviously, having to uh, have their parents take time off from work, drive five hours from someplace in Central California where there was a six to 12 month wait for a dermatology appointment and they could see more, me more quickly, but they'd have to come back every month to see me. And that just felt wrong to me. Um, and there's been a lot of literature now on the exaggeration of health disparities in places like the Navajo Nation, um, in places where they're just underserved for dermatologists. And none of that was really being considered in this program. And so we felt like we have a good case to make. You know, We should be able to make the argument that if we can't get rid of the program, we can at least either take young men out or they maybe have to register and every six months check in to show that they still understand they shouldn't share their medication, for example. Um, and then the final thing that was coming up at that time was the whole issue of gender identity and its impact um, on, uh, on what was going on, and it, which is the one place uh, we can come back to it that we actually have made a little headway in the last um, few months. So that's kind of that in a nutshell. You know, so I was able to get together with some really dynamic people. Uh, John Barbieri, who was at the time at Penn, now at Harvard. Arash uh, Mosangimi uh, and others, uh, uh, Ariel Nagler, Kanadi Shinkai, and we came up with an I pledge group statement, which we published in JAMA Dermatology, which basically proposed what we like to call common sense reforms. Like this is looking at the big picture at the way we practice medicine now. Um, not to say the program should be abolished, because we and I personally do believe that that this drug is worthy of. Of, an, of a REMS program that is thoughtfully designed, um, but I think it has major, major flaws at the present time.
1: What are those flaws with the <laughs> iPledge system as you see it, you know? Well,
2: first of all, I, I think that, let me back up one second and tell you, um, uh, Jill Lindstrom mentioned this, and it's absolutely true, that. This idea of the sponsors. Well, now there are seven sponsors because Hoffman LaRoche no, no longer manufactures. There are seven generic drug manufacturers um, that, that are the, they're called sponsors, but they're the, they're the people that manufacture and market the drug. And they do get together and, and have an interaction with the iPledge program, which they've outsourced uh, to a company called, it happens to be called Cineos who administers it. And and, uh, and then the FDA ultimately has oversight over it, But So the first thing we did when we got together and said we want to form this work group that approaches the FDA was to try and approach the FDA. And, and James Scroggs, who was the legislative person at the time at the AADA, he's now uh, retired, but he was an incredibly dogged advocate and, 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 and tried to get us to be able to communicate with the FDA. And the FDA said, Really, this is a labeling change. This is something that you have to go to the sponsors. So we went to the sponsors, and they said, "No, this is um, the FDA. This, this, the FDA has to tell us what to do." And so we kind of went back and forth that way until finally the sponsors did agree that that they can make labeling changes as long as they're approved by the FDA. And that, and and then we found out that they have a group that actually does meet monthly and discusses eye pledge. but. We've never been able to. We don't know who's who are the members except for one person, um, uh, where one company gave us the name of, of an individual. We don't know who those people are. We don't. Uh, their meetings are private um, meetings. Um, so it, what we found was every layer that we peeled back shows us that there's not transparency about what's going on in these in these meetings, and, and we just have continued to try and push forward. Um, so the, per- the the changes that need to be made, first of all, the status of people who are unable to become pregnant, as the program is now being changed finally, which is the one thing I think we can point to is tangible progress, partly because of the Biden administration um, prohibiting discrimination against transgender individuals. This has moved forward this piece of the agenda, and that is that the program is now going to be classified into individuals that can become pregnant and individuals that cannot become pregnant, and every practitioner will be required to say whether what, what group that their patient is in. So I have a six-year-old child with a rare um, disorder of characterization. Um, he's in the can't-become-pregnant group, obviously. Um, and. There, and, and we know that young men would be in that group too. But, but so far the program hasn't changed at all in the attestation requirements for those individuals. They're still being required to have monthly attestations. although as it turns out, if you actually practice as I do and see a lot of these patients, you can with the boys, you kind of can get away with six to eight weeks sometimes and they won't um, you know call you out on it. but we don't really know how long you could go and still be able to, without having to re-register your patient because they get kicked out of the I pledge program. Why were, I mean, one of the things I think we should discuss in our, in our discussion segment is why males were can continue to be included in a REMS program like this in the first place. And I don't, that's never something that I've completely understood, um, but I, I can give you sort of my perspective on it at, at some point. So there's the issue of of the attestation requirements for for individuals who cannot become pregnant. There's the issue of um, telemedicine and it being explicitly permitted. Um, There's the fact that we need to have information about what is actually, what we're finding out about the the beneficial effects. And then I think we also wanna look at more effective pregnancy prevention and how we can improve the program by encouraging, for example, things like long acting, uh, reproductive uh, contraceptive, like LARCs. And, and would if you, if you had a young woman, for example, who was on one of those, would, could she decrease her attestation requirements by being on such a program? So those are all um, things that we mentioned in our editorial you know, on our opinion piece in JAMA Dermatology, um, that are kind of laid out there.
1: You also mentioned previously, like some of the economic burdens on on the patients, and you know, driving far, um, taking a lot of time off of school and and perhaps off of work from for their parents, um, bringing people into the clinic. Uh, or having long wait periods, and then um, perhaps that having an impact on their level of uh, severity or their scarring, of course. What about the um, administrative burden on sure. dermatology staff?
2: Yes, I, I think that that's become more and more of of a burden because we've changed the way we practice um, acne management, and so. Uh, you know, Le- Dr. Laylor, Leah Laylor was one of our fellows several years ago. And um, so, so I worked with her a lot um, when she was a fantastic fellow. And, we, and I would say compared to even when you were a fellow, we have so many more patients on this medication now. Um, and it's literally can clog up um, clinics that need to really be seeing other patients, so it increases wait times, not just for these patients but for other patients. Um, it's it it and our and our um, even with having our medical assistants involved, they now can uh, help to register the patients and do that kind of thing. It still is an enormous burden on on the staff, and and a lot of that is related to I pledge uh, activities. And if it if if you could manage to uh streamline that it would be enormously helpful
1: yes absolutely we're finding the same thing in our clinics as well we are we are so hamstrung by the time requirements with i pledge and getting patients in and our next available appointment right now is three months from now
2: yeah. we
1: just simply don't have the space but we have to make the space and um it is incredibly burdensome yeah. um, but I
2: think it also one other point, which people may not bring up very often, but if you look at other pl- countries that don't have a program like, like this, they practice very differently in terms of how they administer the drug. So the dogma um, and that we use, and, and I think this is what most residents get taught, is this sort of one milligram per kilogram per day you sort of the race to the finish of basically getting up to a target dose to prevent relapses. But if you use higher doses like that and that and there isn't there is evidence that that causes lower relapses. But if you use higher doses, you have higher side effects, too. You have more dry skin. You have more dry eyes. You have, um, you know, certainly more severe chylitis. You have more muscle aches. And and also, what happens after you've gone through a course and you relapse? Then what do you do? Um, In in places where there's a program that's where there's not a program that has this level of of burden, um, that you can, some people will give 20 10 milligrams, 20 milligrams a day, or even a few times a week. Um, And I I think that for young women of reproductive age group, I I still think they should be getting. Um, either be on a long-acting contraception that has essentially virtually no um, uh, fail rate in terms of pregnancy, or they should be getting regular pregnancy tests. Um, but then there are all these exceptions. There are young women who don't have sex with the men. They have sex with women, or, they're, or they don't have sex at all. I mean, there's all these other exceptions. Should they still be getting monthly pregnancy tests? There, so there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of nuances there. But The fact is, is that I feel badly with having to sort of push those doses when what I really think, and for patients paradoxically with more severe acne, sometimes you want to start with lower doses, but you really want to get them through this burdensome system as fast as you can. So you really want to push the dose. That's sort of not talked about very much, but I think about it a lot in the patients that I see. Oh,
1: absolutely. I I totally agree with you. There are many, many problems that we could outline with I pledge. Um, and, and I totally agree with all of those that you have mentioned, you know, one thing I wanted to ask you, you, you had previously mentioned about how the treatment of acne has changed over time, particularly with those AAD acne treatment guidelines that came out in, um, 2017, 2018, about particularly with the change in um, the antibiotics and duration of exposure with that. Has there been, you also mentioned the oral contraceptives as well as uh, getting the labeling indication for acne. Have there been any other major changes in how acne treatment has been performed over time, like over the course of your career that has been really impactful?
2: I think that those are really the main ones, what I mentioned and that, and they have very much changed what we do. I mean, I think, and, 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 and to put a little finer point on the antibiotic issue is <laughs> The antibiotic stewardship issue is extremely important. And and these are patients who are getting huge amounts of antibiotics until this shift was made. And really, I think as dermatologists, we have to consider ourselves part of a community and and we have to consider our impact on antibiotic stewardship and the impact on not just our patients, but everyone else's patients, right? Um, so drugs like doxycycline, that uh, you know, that's not a drug that's used IV very often. But you know, cephalexin, I mean, cephalosporins work pretty well too. And yet, we try to stay away from them because of exactly these reasons. But when you think of a program like iPledge, if it drives you toward giving more antibiotics and less isotretinoin, that's that's got side effects too. Is a, is the way I see it? I mean, I, I can't. I don't think you can kind of get away with saying, you know, this is all for the good. If, and, and this, again, comes back to what Dr. Lindstrom said about, you know, you're trying to weigh the good and the risks and the benefits of any kind of intervention that you do. Um, so I, I think it was, I think the AAD got it right, the AAD guidelines, um, you know, they are evidence-based, but I, I think that that um, we do just as well or better for our patients in, in the current schema of how we treat acne with not using long-term antibiotics, except that we're coming up Because of that, against a really huge hurdle in other respects.
1: Right, absolutely. There are always going to be side effects with any medication we prescribe. And, you know, with a population as big as the one that we're treating with, um, you know, for acne, on a large enough scale, you're going to find those problems. Dr. Frieden, were you in practice when isotretinoin was? Yes.
2: <laughs> I was a resident when isotretinoin came out as a drug. I was I, I finished in 1983. So it, it's like my whole, it's it spanned my entire career. But I was also a resident before it came out when it was still in clinical trials. And we used to hospitalize patients with acne, if you can imagine, with ac- essentially acne fulminans. But... Um, these young men who would have acne all over their entire chest and they would have thrust. I mean, it, it, was, it was a horrible, horrible, I mean, there were so many patients who, who just suffered so much. I mean, it was, you know, there aren't that many drugs in one's career where you go, know where you didn't need the placebo arm to tell that it worked and this and and isotretinoin is one of those drugs i would argue that propranolol for infantile hemangiomas in my experience is another one of those drugs so i'm always happy when i have more than one that i can point to you know as being that i mean the the clinical benefit is is you know enormous um so yeah it's 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 a drug that i that certainly i've had We knew very early that it was a teratogen, and I I do think that you know not that that there were dermatologists out there who who kind of maybe didn't take it quite as seriously, and 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 that most did, I think. But there were there were people out there who kind of it worked so well. For oily skin that you could give, like you know, ten milligrams twice a week, and someone didn't have to have oily skin. I mean, that's not a good reason to use a drug like this. But that there, there were people who were doing that, so there probably were some people who abused the drug in a way. Um, but I think for the most part, people tried, and certainly now they're
1: with you being in practice or in residency when this medication got FDA approval you have had to then prescribe the medicine through all the different REMS programs um, in their different iterations that Dr. Lindstrom helpfully described to us in the last episode. Um, how, How different has it been with each iteration?
2: Well, I mean the, the iPledge system is is the most comprehensive and and certain definitely the most onerous. And it was really the only one where you you're not going to be able to get this drug for your patients unless you're in it. So in that sense, it, the registry aspect of it works quite well. I mean, there are people who tell me they can somehow get it on the internet. I don't really know how that happens, but anything's possible. But I, I think it, it it has. But you know, one thing that changed with the new program, and increasingly so, is that it, it it there was a little bit of what i would call scope creep which is to say you know the mental health concerns got added and you know we know that that um and and part of that was political there was a congressman a very very prominent congressman whose son um committed suicide while he was on the medication and he very publicly blamed the drug um we know that Epidemiologic studies show that that there's not an increased risk of suicide over the over the general age group that we're using the medication in, and really it it's uh, there's also were concerns about inflammatory bowel disease, and that too, in most studies, this is not proven to be something. And yet, I, I think that the companies, since they were stuck with it, my theory is that the sponsors, as they're called it's kind of a way that they can indemnify themselves. They know that people are gonna to have to sign a consent for this drug and that they can kind of say, well, I mean, every, you, got, you got told that, that you know there could be mental health issues um, and that's now part of the landscape. But, but again, to me, the part that just is the biggest disconnect is this is really the, this is a REM program to prevent pregnancy, why, why are we treating individuals who can't become pregnant in essentially the same way, except not requiring them to get a pregnancy test, obviously that, that, that's never made sense to me. Um, And it, it it continues to me to be, I would say the greatest concern. Well,
1: I think that's a great note for us to end on today. Thank you so much for being (laughs) with us today and explaining all of the clinical issues associated with our I pledge REMS programs with Isotretinoin.
0: Well, thanks for having me. This has been episode two of three in our Acne Points of Discussion mini series. Thank you to Dr. Alona Frieden for highlighting the challenges providers and patients face with the I pledge program. Thank you to Dr. Layler for hosting such an engaging discussion. In our next episode, Dr. Alona Frieden and Dr. Jill Lindstrom will come together to discuss possible solutions to the challenges faced by both sides. I would also like to thank our Points of Discussion program sponsors, AbbVie Inc., Eli Lilly and Company, and Sanofi Genzyme and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals for their support of this independent medical education program. Be sure to subscribe to Pedra Pearls in Google Play, iTunes, or Spotify to get the latest episodes. You can also access this podcast as well as other educational programming in the Pedra app available for Apple and Android users. Please feel free to leave a comment. And if you have any questions, reach out to us at info at pedraresearch.org. Pedra is solely responsible for all program content and the selection of all presenters, authors, moderators, and faculty.